another episode of Am I Doing This Right? I'm Corinne Fox. And I'm Natalie McMillan. And we are best friends, confidants, millennials, and the hosts of Am I Doing This Right? A life how-to podcast from the perspective of non-experts. Emphasis on the non-experts. Yes, emphasis on the <laughs> Each week, we cover a new topic and we drink a new bottle of wine. Yes, we do. And this week, we have a very emotional episode, but a deeply impactful one. We're going to be talking about how to turn your pain into power. And we have two amazing guests on the podcast today. We have Melissa Bumstead and Lauren Hammersley. They are both mothers to children with cancer and they faced immeasurable pain and trauma. And what they did with that trauma is really remarkable as they transmuted it into purpose, activism, and an initiative for their community and really the entire nation as a whole. So we're going to be talking to them about how to find purpose in tragedy and how to rise from trauma and redefine your life. Yes. Oh my gosh. Well, for this one, we might need to we definitely take need. a little sip of wine. Yeah. And, you know, they even said that how they kind of got through some of the days at the hospital was wine. Yeah. And so here we are with our Aveline. Yes. Um, thank you, Cameron Diaz and Catherine Howard. Thank you guys so much. We have the sparkling rosé. Yeah, and this is new. I think it just launched for the summer. Yeah, so, perfect timing. Yeah, Nat, let's – oh, you're going to do a little Ooh. pour. Ooh. I wonder if they can hear the fizzy. I can hear that it's extra fizzy. Yeah. Um, okay, I'm going to pour That's myself the sparkling. Also, the bottle, if you guys – you guys can't see it, but it's this little half bottle. It's like perfect size. It's like literally the perfect size for like a picnic. You and a friend. Yeah, you – Right, us. Because mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I feel like we never we never finish a bottle. No. All. So we should is- send these to to Lauren and Melissa. <gasps> we should. Because they could definitely, you know, they're they're little besties too. I love that for them. And let's talk about why we wanted to do this topic with them and why we're so excited to have Melissa and Lauren on. I think that everyone at some point experiences trauma and tragedy. They've experienced probably, you know, one of the worst ones, which is, you know, your child having cancer. Mm-hmm. Lauren also Losing lost child. her daughter as well. And so I think it, it's really hard to ex- escape lows in life. You know, life has highs and lows. And, and you can't choose what cards you're dealt. Yeah, you can't. And so I think we do get to choose how that trauma defines us. And I think these two women have really found a purpose in their pain, are doing incredible work, and I think will teach us how we can reframe and kind of redefine our lives after tragedy. Mm. I want to just do a little intro for them. Yeah. Just to give them a little background here. Yeah. So Melissa and Lauren, they actually met at the children's hospital here in LA when their daughters were both in treatment and they realized that they lived really close to one another. And then they started meeting more neighbors whose children also had really rare forms of pediatric cancer. Kind of the alarm bell started to go off. Through all of this, they started Parents Against Santa Susana Field Lab after they learned that they lived within just miles of this contaminated site here in L.A., and it's never been cleaned up. So actually, a documentary is coming out. It's called In the Dark of the Valley, which goes in depth about the situation, about what's going on at the Santa Susana Field Lab and how they've been fighting to get it cleaned up. It's being screened at Cinequest Film Festival. It's been at Cleveland International Film Festival, and it's set to appear next at the Phoenix Film Festival, August 20th through 22nd. Yeah, and and just off that, I, I'm going to tell them when we meet them on the podcast, but I actually grew up in this area, mm-hmm. which is when we watch- The doc- exact area. No, like not even like, oh, I live near- No, like I live- This is where I grew up. This is where my family currently lives. So it was actually very eye-opening and shocking and devastating for me to watch this film, but it's so powerful. So let's welcome Melissa and Lauren. Hello, Lauren and Melissa. It is so good to meet you. We, We watched your documentary and we're so moved by it. So we're so excited to have you guys here. Oh, we're excited to be here. Thank you for having us. Yeah, I was saying this briefly before we got started, but I feel like it's, I have to say it before we get into it, but my family lives in Simi, 
I grew up in Chatsworth and I went to Sierra Canyon and grew up in like West Hills. I went to West Hills Hospital. That's where I was born. So like this area when I was watching the documentary is so personal. I mean, it was just- It's your whole life. One, I have never heard of this. I never heard that this happened or is continuing to happen. And two, you know, my family lives there. I have sisters that are 12 and 13 and it was just terrifying to hear your guys' story and to know that this is still going on. And one, I just wanted to applaud you for the work you're doing yes. um, as like a family that lives in that area. I, I want to support you in any any way that I can. So anyways, I just wanted to say that off the top. Off the top. <laughs> I felt like I, I needed to. But, but both of your guys', both of your journeys kind of began with the diagnoses of both of your daughters, one at the age of two and the other at the age of four, right? Yes. I, I really can't imagine what that was like for you as mothers when they were going through their initial treatments. And I know that people kind of process traumatic events in different ways. And some people get angry. Some people get motivated. Some people, you know, don't feel anything at all. What was kind of your, each of yours initial response to some of the, the worst news of your life? Let's see you can go first. It will. My daughter was four when she was diagnosed and we had done everything right. You know, we ate the, off the, we kept off the dirty dozen list to make sure we were eating the safest fruits and vegetables. We were, you know, I breastfed the whole time. I was careful. I mean, we were really careful. And so, and she was super, super healthy, outrageously. So like the kind of kid who was jumping off tables before I could catch her and walking early, talking early, you know, never keeping up with her. And so when she started taking naps again, when she was four and just wanting to cuddle and she's, she's go girl. She's, she's not a like, let's sit here and cuddle for half an hour, girl. Um, we knew something was wrong. Um, just would have never imagined cancer of all, of all things, because like you, I, I've lived I've lived within 50 miles of the Santa Susana field lab my entire life and wow. never heard of it. Yeah, it was it was crazy. And then um, I met Lauren towards the end of treatment for Hazel, her daughter, and we kind of got to know each other a little bit, you know, but it wasn't until my daughter relapsed in 2017, about the same time as Hazel, that we became like sisters. I mean, we were our girls were in the rooms next to each other. And I think it's kind of like being in the army or military, you know. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. You go through trauma together and, and you become sisters. And one thing that I think is funny, I just want to share real quick, is that Lauren and I used to sneak in wine to the children's <laughs> hospital. <laughs> and we, we <laughs> that was one of our many coping mechanisms, but um, that was like kind of sacred time for us. Lauren, why don't you jump in? Your, your diagnosis story is really kind of amazing because that mother instinct that you have is just so spot on. Yeah. But to, to answer your question at first, when we first got the diagnosis, you kind of, you, you just go into work mode because mm. at the core, you want to save your child's life and there's no time to really process what's happening. Right. I mean, I, I know, yeah, day. yeah I, I know that for us, I remember very clearly, we, we got the diagnosis in the emergency room at Children's Hospital and we just kind of walked the halls like, in a fog. We, we just couldn't believe what happened to us. And we, we said, let's go outside. Maybe we need to take a walk outside. And we got to the corner and we're like, I don't know what we're doing, why we're here. Like we're just crying and you know, you kind Disbelief. of believe. Yeah. So we were in shock for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, but then you, you, we started treatment. Yeah. The next day. So you don't really wow. have time to process the trauma. So like grace, Hazel was really healthy. She was two years old, super chunky and, you know, running around. She also didn't take naps anymore and she was two. So, you know, that says a lot. And she was getting really tired and lethargic and she stopped eating. And I just kind of knew something was going on. And I would call the doctors and they said, oh, you know, just keep an eye on her. Does she have a fever? And they said, not yet. And they said, if she spikes a fever, you can come in. And she, that night she spiked a fever of like 101. And I just knew something was wrong. She was falling asleep at the dinner table. She wouldn't even take sweets, you know, like it was very, very different from our typical Hazel. And we went to the pediatrician and Hazel was just laying on the exam room table, like motionless. And, you know, if you have kids, you, you know, when you bring them to the doctor, they're touching everything, they're moving around. You can't, you can't keep them still, but she was just laying there. And as she was doing the exam, I just looked at the doctor and I said, I don't know why, but I think she has cancer. And she said, no, it's, I'm sure it's not 
cancer, maybe it's appendicitis or something with her liver, but you know, that's very rare. So don't, you know, don't get yourself too worried. But by that evening they found a tumor and we were at children's hospital. So there was just something inside of me that knew. And that thing that's inside of you as a mother, that doesn't stop during treatment and during diagnosis. You just, you do everything to advocate for and protect your child. Yeah. And now protecting a whole community, really. Yeah. yeah we're trying. Or the whole country <laughs> in a way. Yeah. You know? For real. Um, I, I'm curious. I mean, I know you said that it, um, you know, you, you don't have time to process when all this is going on and, you, and your mother instincts turn on and you're protecting your young, right? Like that's your sole purpose. But did you have to navigate your own like fear through this and be strong for your daughter and, and both your daughters? And if so, like, how did you explain your fear to your daughters or what's going on or this, the magnitude of, of their diagnosis? Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's, it, it's like you're, you're learning how to swim the entire time. Yeah. Mm-hmm. There's not really time to sit back and say, this is happening. Mm-hmm. I remember the first week we were driving home and I accidentally, I stopped in the middle of an intersection, a busy intersection and just stopped. I forgot where I was for probably a good full 10 seconds. Wow. Just no understanding of anything. I mean, you're not sleeping. You're not hospitals work 24 hours. Um, there's, there's no, there is no feeling right? because you can't allow it. There's no, I mean, my, biggest fear. I wasn't very healthy the first time Grace had cancer emotionally. I had to go to therapy, actually still in therapy for learning how to have feelings. And so mine was a little extreme, but all the same, I remember the day Gracie relapsed, you know, I was obviously devastated. I've I've got to say relapse is even worse than the first time because you know what to expect. And, you know, for, for most children, when they relapse, survival rates go down to almost zero. It's very, very frightening. And I was crying. They had me in a separate room from Grace. She, they hadn't told her yet. And um, the nurse said, all right, mom, wash your face and go out there and be mom again. Um, wow. And and that's what we do because, you know, I probably should have let Gracie, but especially when they're really young, they don't understand, yeah. you know, like two and four years old. My daughter didn't even have a word besides mad. Um, yeah. She didn't know what cancer was. She didn't she didn't know anything. So if we got ever hysterical, they absorbed that. Right. You know? they, and yeah. it was like, mm-hmm. we had to set the energy and the tone, the, we can get through this mentality. We never give up mentality, but that in itself is very isolating and exhausting. And Lauren and I used to say often that we felt like our feet weren't touching the floor, like this out of body experience of watching this happening, but not having any way to, to connect ourselves to it because we, we have to disassociate ourselves. And especially when Grace was in BMT, we weren't, was totally germ-free. It's like being in a bubble practically. We couldn't have sheets from home. We couldn't have toys from home. We couldn't have, you know, any scent would make her vomit. So no food in the room. No, I mean, you almost start to have like, you start to go insane, you know, you open the door and you're like, wow, there's life out here. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, I I think you touched on something, Melissa. I know I tried really hard to protect Hazel from our hysterics about it because we did have big feelings. You can't not, you know, when your child's life is in danger and you have no idea what's next and you don't know if they're going to survive or how long they'll survive or how the treatment's going to affect their body. So you do have a lot of feelings, but because they're young, you don't want to start out showing them that fear because they have a lot ahead of them. You know, Hazel had to do chemotherapy, radiation, surgeries. Like it was, it was a lot. And like she said, she was so young, so she didn't understand a lot. And we didn't use the word cancer right away. We just called it neuroblastoma, which is the type of cancer she had because we didn't want friends that maybe have heard that word before, maybe lost a grandparent or something to say, oh, cancer. Well, my grandpa died from cancer. No. So we kind of wanted to just call it what it was and take each day as it came. And, you know, you also have to remember to try to figure out a way to help them still be kids in the midst of all of that. And so if you are isolating yourself and being afraid all the time, then that's not going to help them try to have as much of a normal of a childhood as possible. And so, like she said, it was kind of the, we can do this mentality, like let's get through today and let's play hide and seek after chemo's done. And like, you know, it, but it's hard. You, you feel so much all the time, even when you just look at your child who's going yeah. through it and 
it's hard to hide it. And there were times where we had to, we had to face the real feelings, especially when they got older, because they had real feelings about it. And they were afraid and they were, they were hurting and they were in pain. So, you know, I think it's just to find balance. You, you hide it when you need to, but then you, you face it and you honor it when, when you absolutely have to. You guys are super human. Yeah. You're so strong. Oh my God. Honestly, you do, you do what you have to do. Every mother would do the same. Like, I don't have anything special that, that you or Natalie, you know, doesn't have like, when it's your child, you just jump into gear and you go, you know? Yeah. Well, we wouldn't be sitting here talking to you guys if it weren't for the Santa Susana Field Lab mm-hmm. and for this documentary in the dark of the valley, which is making its way around film festival circuits. But for those of us who have not seen it, can you go into kind of a brief overview of what it was and if you had any knowledge of it at all before? Yeah. You had found out. Yeah, about I'm your curious daughters. if you guys knew about it because I grew up there and had never heard of it. And I drove by it all the yeah. time and be like, oh, look at this. Well, you know, who knows Same. what it I didn't even know what it was. I would drive through the through the pass all the time. Um, so anyways, go on. <laughs> well, if it makes you feel better, it was a huge cover-up for the last 60 years. From from day one, from the first nuclear accident, and there were many nuclear accidents at the site. Um, they were sworn to secrecy and, and this wasn't just, you know, some meth lab bum, this was the government. And Mm -hmm. so they could keep it secret. Would my mom, um, would get precancerous tumors all over her mouth when she was a child and had to have those burned off. Nobody thought Santa Susana field lab. And then when she got a brain tumor later in life, nobody was saying, Oh, could, could it be the radiation when mm. I got an autoimmune disease and had to have my spleen taken out? It turned out I had three. I had a mutant spleen for real. N- nobody oh talked God. about it. I mean, nobody was connecting the dots. And I think everybody just thought, oh, we're unlucky. And so the site itself was kept secret. They had four nuclear reactors because they were experimental, meant for um, producing energy. They didn't build a containment dome over it. You know, those concrete things so if there is an accident doesn't get to the public they didn't they just had them in like 10 warehouses and when they did start to overheat and they knew it uh, they wanted to meet an energy quota to get a contract a government contract so they actually opened all the doors to let that radioactive steam you know go out into the community in addition to that they took all of the nation's well, at least from all of the nation, radioactive waste, and they they reprocessed it there. There were lab fires, nuclear lab fires. There were nuclear spills. There was illegal. Um, and this is something that's interesting that we didn't hear about it because I think it was in 1994, two scientists blew themselves up by accident on the site. And there was an oh FBI my, raid. Yeah. Oh, my God. It's yeah. like out of a science fiction movie. And- And somehow we didn't hear, I mean, but it was in the news. I mean, it was in the paper, but still everyone, I think, just kept thinking, maybe this is a one-off. This is a, it can't be that bad. Also, I think when you live that close to it, you probably don't want to know if you feel there's nothing you can do about it. So um, I think for, oh, go ahead. Oh, well, I was just going to say they also had over 30,000 rocket engine tests. They had over a million gallons of TCE, which is a class A carcinogenic chemical, um, was lost into the soil. I mean, lead, outrageous lead. um, I mean, name something crazy dangerous. And and not only was it at the site, it contaminated the site, the ground, the soil, the the groundwater there. So like plutonium-236 has a 24,000 year half-life is loose in the soil right now at the Santa Susana field lab. And somehow this isn't on the national news every day. So, so yes, it was huge and yet somehow so secretive and somehow still struggling to get the word out that this even exists so that people can fight it because right now the polluters don't want to clean it up. And the regulating agency is in the pocket of the polluters. You know, Boeing owns most of it. Boeing has a lot of money mm-hmm. and we're yeah, losing the right. cleanup as we speak. We, we are not going to get a complete cleanup if, if things don't change, but it's hard to get changed when nobody knows about it and how serious. Yeah. yeah like Melissa was saying, so at the field lab, if, if people don't understand there, there was rocket testing and all of these things that were done there. And then there was nuclear meltdown in the middle of the 20th century. And then it was covered up. And it wasn't until what, like 1970, 
when when did Dan Hirsch and his students? I forget. 1979. Yeah, 1979. These students that worked with this man, Dan Hirsch, they they uncovered the information and started to give this information to the public. But even still, the information has not been disseminated very well. And there's been a lot more efforts to cover it up. I grew up in the area as well, and I didn't know about it. And I remember when we bought our first house, there was a little byline that says that we have to acknowledge that this is in our area. And I remember going, oh, that's strange. But I said, oh, well, I know that they built rockets up there, but I didn't know it was because there was a spill. I just thought it was because you were acknowledging that that site was up there. Mm -hmm. And um, so the fact that there was a a major spill and a cover-up and all of these things and a higher incidence rate of cancer in the area, 60% higher. And nobody knows. Nobody knows. And I don't know if it caused my daughter's cancer. I can't say that with certainty. However, there are people who can say that with certainty. And because I know what it's like to walk through cancer and lose a person to cancer, I want to protect anybody else from that as well. So I, I try really hard to not point fingers because I can't say for sure, except I do know there are people whose cancer were I'll point fingers. Yeah. <laughs> fingers. Yes. Well, I just can't is, for my daughter, you know. And but the other thing is so many of the cancer um, diagnoses are children. It's a lot of pediatric. Yes. And there's only 15,000 new cases of pediatric cancer in America every year. And like neuroblastoma that Hazel had, there's only about like what? 300. Mm-hmm. In the nation, out of 72 million children, and we started ha- the the way we started to really put the pieces together is, you know, when Lauren and I met, and she mentioned she lived in Simi Valley, and I remember specifically, she said, "Yeah, that's probably like I don't know, five or six miles from you as the crow flies." Like that's burned in my brain because all of a sudden I was like, "No, wait, statistically, that's America this doesn't very make big. sense." Right. And if it's just a genetic fluke, like we had been told, we wouldn't be that close. Well, then it turned out, um, you know, I met a kid one block over and then I met one, a girl, a high schooler, two blocks over, one down. And then there was one on my avenue. And then, you know, and it's like, we started to panic because we met more and more people. And it's not supposed to be like that. That's when we first learned about the Santa Susana field that we were mapping ourselves on Google Maps, all the parents. And we just saw this. like, what's the common thread (sighs) here? Yep. And they say that we can't prove that our children's cancer was caused by the site. We're not even labeled a cancer cluster because they had all these different cancers, even though they had all these different contaminants up there. But Mm -hmm. you know what? If you have one of the biggest nuclear meltdowns in America, I think it's their responsibility to prove that they didn't cause. Yes, Mm -hmm. right. Then you doing the other way around and you two are really on the front lines of this movement of getting this cleaned up or getting the what getting the minimum, word getting out. the word out. I mean, at what point did you guys decide to take matters into your own hands? Like was it by choice or was it I mean, it seems like it was by necessity, right? Yeah, you know, I remember we we have a mutual friend who's a local reporter. Her name is Christine Lazar and she did several stories on Hazel because during Hazel's uh, treatment, she her story went viral. She put a sign in the window that said send pizza room 4112 <laughs> and somebody posted it on reddit and it became the number one story we got like 250 pizzas sent to the hospital oh my and god like followers from around the world like we had over 150,000 people on our facebook page and it was wonderful uh, so christine started doing stories on our family she got to know me really well we became friends and when Melissa and I were kind of discovering this, we said to Christine, would you be interested in telling our story? Because we feel like other parents in this area need to know this and need to understand the risks of living here. And maybe there are other kids with cancer that we don't know about that can reach out to us if the story's out there. And so she did a news story and it it went pretty far. And, but it, it was one of those things where we felt like it wasn't necessarily out of necessity, except for the fact that we felt other children deserved protection just as much as our daughters. Did. Mm-hmm. And yeah. we had this information now and we couldn't not speak up. You know, it was almost like a moral obligation to the people in our community because people were so kind to us as well. And we wanted to make sure that you know, we were doing the same back to them. And I don't know. I, I feel like it kind of was a whirlwind Tom Melissa. I feel like it just, all started happening really fast and and we Super just felt like, later <laughs> yeah i just felt like the, the information just couldn't be secret anymore 
you know. Yeah. Yeah. Who initially supported you guys when you started speaking out about this? Was it a lot of the families? I mean, the families were, I think all of us were afraid because we didn't even know if we were right. You know, we had a government agency saying we were all, you know, you were getting gaslit. Yeah. Yeah. Very much. That was going to be my next question because somebody in the documentary had said, um, like, I'm a teacher. I'm, I'm not irrational. They should up in front of a panel. So do you guys, did it, did it feel Mm -hmm. like you and the people supporting you? And I'm sorry, I kind of cut you off there kind of had to like press your emotions down. Like you wouldn't be taken seriously because you're a mother or because you're, you know, you're a woman. Oh yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, well, I remember, I remember the very first meeting Lauren and I were there. We went to a public um, department of toxic substance control. That's the regulating agency. And uh, they had this three hour public meeting to inform us about the dangers of the site. And they had glossy charts and PowerPoints and all this stuff. And at the end of three hours, they said, by the way, we used all hypothetical numbers. And I raised my hand and we were there with like, I think six other cancer moms, several who had already buried their children and said, you know, have you not done the research? Are you expecting these numbers to come in? Is that why you're using this data? And he said, oh, you know, it's all online. The real data, it's very complicated. You should leave Uh it to a scientist. Mm-hmm. Oh and, my god. I mean, for me, that's when it got real because you don't use fake numbers unless you're hiding something. I mean, that's so basic. Right. Right. I, mm-hmm. I almost threw up after that. And speaking out was not my plan at all. In fact, I wanted to just hide under my bed. It's not my personality at all. Mm-hmm. I just remember one day walking into my local Target and there was a little blonde baby who didn't have any hair because it was a baby, but I assumed it had cancer. And, you know, because we keep, we kept meeting other kids with cancer, walking through Costco and at the park, twice at the park that happened. So I just assumed, oh my gosh, it's another kid who had cancer. And then I had the realization that if I don't say something to protect kids, then I might as well be with the polluters. I'm, mm-hmm. I'm in the cover-up. I'm now part of the cover-up. You know, I'm either going to be devastated trying to do something that I have no idea what I'm doing, or I can be devastated, at least trying to make a difference. And that's for me what I, what I ended up taking. At that first meeting, people were ready to like throw chairs. People were screaming. People were so mad that the government was clearly doing this to them. And I remember looking around and said, who is the most level-headed person here who seems the most sane right now at this moment whoever that is on whatever side they're on that's who I'm going to go talk to thank god it was Denise Denise Duffield who's in the documentary she's associate director of physicians for social responsibility Los Angeles and she really took me under her wing and mentored me and helped me when I felt you know so scared that I would throw up before meetings and she would sit next to me and and Lauren and you know it was like we we built the support group for ourselves because we didn't know what we were doing. We're not qualified to be doing what we're doing now. (laughs) Right. And you're up against, you're up against super intimidating, you know, politicians and And Boeing corporations. And and you're, you never expected this for Mm -hmm. yourselves. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it was definitely scary because we're, they make you feel very small when you are, you know, going up against people who have all this power, all of this money, all of these things that they can do to affect change and change in their favor. And we're trying to affect change to protect our communities. And it was really difficult. I, like you asked, you know, did we feel like they took us seriously as women or as mothers? And, and I feel like for a long time, no, you know, I feel like there was a period of time where we were going to meetings and, and we were just, the, the emotional mothers, you know, that didn't really understand anything. And, and I, I didn't feel like we had to hide our emotions because to be honest, like we really couldn't, <laughs> but mm-hmm. also I feel like for some people, it, that was what resonated with them finally, because for so long they were fighting against other protesters and other business interests. But when the people with the real stories came involved, all of a sudden people started listening. And then the, we signed the petition or we created the petition. Melissa did. And when that took off, it was like, oh, wait, we have to take these people seriously. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I mean, this is just the, the work that you guys have done is just it's incredible. But I mean, this has also been through 
really horrific events. And Lauren, I know you lost your daughter and I'm so sorry for that. Um, but it seems as though both of you throughout this have found like your voice and, and I don't want to speak for you, but maybe your life's kind of purpose. And do you think that we're in control of how tragedy defines us? Like what we, you you can't, um, choose the cards you're dealt, but you can choose, you know, how you use them. Melissa, do you want to go first? Do you want me to go first? <laughs> that's, that's a weighty one. Let me. Let me yeah. Okay. On. I could. I thought about this because you guys sent us this question beforehand. I, I listen to a lot of podcasts, read a lot of books, and it, it is a lot about how tragedy and trauma defines you, and, and how do you let it define you, and it's really easy to talk about it and to say, oh, well, you have to choose, you have to choose, but right. it is much more complicated. And, you know, Melissa has done such a great job after I lost Hazel, like I had to back away from all of this. It was just yeah. too much for me. And honestly, I, I couldn't even keep my head straight for most of my life, let alone fighting big corporations. So, you know, she really took on the bulk of all of this and I was a cheerleader behind the scenes, but I do believe we, we have a choice, but I'm still in the midst of trying to figure out what that choice is and how to make it. So yeah. I don't want anybody listening to think that they're doing a bad job or think that, you know, they can't, can't let, or can't define themselves outside of their tragedy. Because honestly, like losing Hazel and her cancer journey has defined me in so yeah. many ways. Mm-hmm. And there are days where I can't get out of bed. There are days where I don't know what to do, but putting purpose to the pain has been Mm. what has propelled me to move forward. And this is a big part of that, like protecting children like my daughter so that other kids don't have to be buried like my daughter and other families don't have to suffer like ours. There is a empowerment that comes along with that. And, and without that, I feel like it would be even harder for me to move forward. So that, yeah, yeah, that that answer your question. Yeah, that that completely makes sense. We've talked on the podcast before about toxic positivity and how you have to allow room to, uh, in your case, mourn and grieve, and then also hurt and be affected by what's happening to you in order for you to move forward. Right? You're just delaying yeah, all of that the process, or, or it's all building it. all all up. And then, but I, I love what you said that that putting purpose to the hurt, to the pain. To the pain. Yeah. I got chills when you said that. And yeah. Cause that it, it, it's not the absence of pain. It's, you know, how you, I guess, reframe it yeah. a little bit. Yeah. But it's really difficult. Yeah. And I love that you're, <laughs> yeah. you're clarifying that because yeah. I think people also feel the need to be like, I gotta, you know, rise from the ashes and yes. like, you know, and it's yeah. like, you don't have to. You know, you can have the days where you're laying in bed. You can have the years when that's happening. Um, and that's okay, too. And I think yeah. you also said in the documentary something along the lines of, I'm not stopping, I'm pausing. Yes. And taking that time for yourself. And I think that's also so important. Like, I think a lot of times people think, like, they can't stop, right? Yes. Yeah. But it's what's so amazing is that you have each other, and now you've created this kind of group of people who can all keep fighting and it's going to just keep getting bigger and bigger, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. and Melissa, so that people can pause because it's absolute. A lot of people are in your exact same position. Yeah. And, and Melissa has been so kind. We've talked about this so many times is, you know, you, you can only do as much as you can do, but even the smallest amount helps, even if it's just a moment. And, and I have to remind myself of that because there's so many times I watched Melissa, like, kicking ass <laughs> and <laughs> I feel like, oh my gosh, I should be right there with her. And then I have to remember like my journey is going to be different than hers. And what I can give is going to be different than her. And that's okay. And I don't need to compare myself. And Melissa doesn't need to compare herself to anybody else, but she's making the difference that she's supposed to make. And man, she's doing like the most incredible job. So <laughs> seriously. <laughs> Yeah, well, I don't know that I could stand a day and 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 keep up the way you do, Lauren. Like, and 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 we we luckily we have such a good friendship. We can talk about that bluntly. Yeah, yeah um, I got dressed today, so hey. I know. Hey, hey. hey. Yeah. we'll celebrate it. I just sober today. Yep. 
There we go. Hey, there we go. <laughs> the baby steps. It's the little baby steps. Yes. I think, I think for me, the first time Grace had cancer, I did have a very like, let's get up through the ashes. We can win. We're going to prove ourselves. When she relapsed, it was like all of that went away and a thousand times negative because you realize like all the good vibes you want still can't control anything. And the loss of control of that in itself is very traumatic, but that did give me an opportunity to deal with my emotions a little bit more. I think the pain dealing with trauma for me was a daily choice, sometimes a a minute to minute choice of would I go forward or would I go backwards? And for me, my faith was a huge part of that too. I don't think I would have survived without it. And I got this uh, tattoo. It says, great is thy faithfulness. And that was a hymn that I sang every day in the hospital shower as kind of my theme song that that God would provide for me what I needed for that day. You know, Mm. might not be what I want for tomorrow, but for, for that day, I was making the choice to keep trusting and keep trying and keep going. And then I tattooed it on my arm just in case I forgot. <laughs> but we need that daily reminder. Yeah. But I think, I think there's a beauty that I never saw before in life of being broken. You know, America, mm-hmm. Americans don't like broken. Um, we don't yeah. like failure. We don't like slow. You know, mm-hmm. we want it all. We shiny. don't like healing. No, no. And it, there's, you know, I know Lauren has probably been, ask this a thousand times, are you better yet? You know, or at least we, <laughs> yeah, right. Are you over it? Yeah. Yeah. Right. Let's move on get the past behind you, you know? And it's like, there, my trauma isn't even as deep nearly as Lauren's and there will be no getting over it for me. You know, this, yeah. but I've learned to embrace that broken part of myself that every now and then needs to come out and just be broken, not for the sake of even healing it just yeah. for the sake of just, you know, be. my daughter had cancer that deserves to be mourned. Yeah, and yeah, deserves yeah. to be broken, you know, um, and that that's kind of something new to me that I'm still just starting to learn of like, I, d- I don't need to be okay. Yeah, and, and that's okay. It's okay to not be okay. It's been my yeah. mantra. And, and it's it, sometimes it's even healthy to not be okay, because you're just masking when you're pretending and at some point it's all gonna yeah come to the surface yeah. would it be bad if i said that sometimes when people wear cool vibes only that i want to punch them <laughs> not at all not that's at what all. we're saying with this toxic positivity thing where it's like you have or you know it's like you have to be happy all the time or bad things are gonna happen it's like bad things happen to the best people i know it's like yeah. the children yeah my daughter didn't children. do anything uh, remain negative in order to create her cancer you know and, right. yeah it's and it, just... I think it helped my my kids too to be able to honor those feelings they were having and Hazel especially like if I was just constantly like everything's going to be okay everything's going to be okay and never dealt with the fear of her possibly dying you know like she had to really face those questions for herself and I don't think it would have been fair to her to to just you know brush it off and just be positive you know as much as I wanted to be I wanted to just be positive and say, yeah, she's going to make it. She's going to make it. But like Melissa said, when, when our daughters relapsed, the chances of survival almost dropped to zero. And the fact that Gracie survived her relapse is remarkable. Hazel, she beat cancer twice. So she did survive her first relapse and we all felt the same. It was, it was a miracle. And when she relapsed the third time and having to tell her and having to tell our children, you know, we had to be real. We couldn't just be positive and, and, you know, move forward in that way because it just wouldn't be fair. I remember the day she relapsed, Lauren. I don't know if you remember, you called me on the drive home and mm-hmm. you said, I need to talk to you because I know you're not going to tell me it's going to be okay. And, mm. you know, and that's, that's a hard place to be in life. And yet those are the truest friendships. And I think that's the truest version of ourselves in those moments. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's hard because not only did we have to learn with our own emotions and I had a long way to go for learning emotions. We did not do emotions really in my family unless they were blowing up. I mean, we were just saying the other day, (laughs) we were saying the other day, it seems like it's like Gen Z is the first generation that's like, we're all in therapy. It's all great. Yeah. You know? Yeah. It's like so beautiful. Mm -hmm. Um, Sorry, my ADHD medicine wore off like an hour ago. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so sorry. No, no, no. I mean, you, you were just, you were talking about that, that conversation you were having and um, the truest and, friends and the truest friendships and learning emotion. Yeah. Right. Oh and, yeah. Learning emotion and having to learn it for us, but then also having to learn it for our children because for, for children. Grace, 
you know, when Hazel died, she had a friend die the, the week before that. She had two funerals um, to go to and, you know, helping them navigate those feelings. I mean, thank God that we did have therapists. We had support teams at the hospital. We had resources. Even still, though, they're hard. They're hard to get. Even mental health for children in cancer is hard to get. To get it for their siblings is almost impossible, especially if you want someone to help you pay for it. Yeah. But, yeah. but it's a journey, you know, it's a really hard journey when you're dealing with trauma. You're not always just dealing with your own trauma. You know, a lot of times you're shouldering it. I think we're feeling that all with COVID right now. Yeah. We're bearing each other's burdens as well as our own. Yeah, there's a collective trauma and a, and a collective experience to it all. Well, I mean, the work that you, that both you women are doing is, is really incredible Incredible. um, and we applaud you and we want to know how we and our listeners can support you and what your next initiatives are um, on this, on this fight in this movement that you're creating to, to get this cleaned up so that other children don't suffer. What, what's the best way for us to support you? I already said, I signed the petition. I signed the petition. (laughs) Thank you. That is on our way to a million, right? Yes. Getting there. (laughs) Um, well, there, we also have a website, parents against SSFL, Santa Susana field of SSFL.com. Um, we put out newsletters about, it's always kind of changing what needs to happen right now. We're calling for the resignation of people at DTSU by name. So that's kind of intense, but I want to throw out there too, is that the reason why we're fighting so, so, so hard here. And I think the reason why the polluters are fighting so hard against it is that if there were to be one spot in the nation to get a good cleanup. It's the Santa Susana Field Lab. Yeah. We have mm-hmm. we have scientists helping us. We have the physicians for social responsibility helping us. We've got we've already got a lot of the EPA reports done. We don't have to fight to get those. There are sites like ours across America, even yeah. way worse than what's happening here. Pediatric mm-hmm. cancer clusters all around them. Uh, on the indigenous people on their reservations, uranium poisoning is outrageous. Mm-hmm. And so we're fighting to set a precedent here. That will hopefully affect the rest of the nation and protect the rest of the nation's children too. And I, I really believe that. So, you know, if people can donate, if they can write letters, if they can email, if they can knit sweaters, whatever their capacity <laughs> is to help, we could use it because, you know, and we're even, not even word of mouth. Mm-hmm. Yes. Telling your friends that this I, is happening. I, I just told my my mom who lives there and yeah. she was like, Oh, I have heard of that, but I didn't really know it was that bad. And yeah, she's still exactly. falling in. She's going to be listening to this episode with her, you know, jaw to the floor. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it was one of the largest nuclear spills in American history. It's not just some small accident. So I feel like yeah. more people need to know. And I think like Melissa was saying, contacting your representatives um, and or putting pressure on the representatives for this area is one of the biggest um, things you can do. And Everything's accessible on Twitter these days, so you can you can um, tag your representatives on Twitter, and they'll see it, you know. And and sharing about the Santa Susana Field Lab, and hopefully, when the documentary is more accessible and not just on film festival circuits, they can share that as well. Yeah, yeah. definitely. Well, thank you both. It was oh so incredible gosh. to meet you and talk to you, and thank you for what you're doing. And we will be supporting you as you continue. Thank yeah, you so much for having us. Thank yeah, you. Thank you. I think we both were just holding back tears the whole time. Yeah, we were. And chills. I had chills the whole time. And just seeing them, seeing these two moms, just like regular moms, how much they've done, it's unbelievable. How much they've been through, are continuing to do. And I love that they were like really honest about, um, you know, what it takes to rise up from this tragedy and that it doesn't it's not some phoenix in the ash moment you know it's a continuous process that they're going through but then you know and maybe they can't fully see it but they're still doing incredible work even through their pain Mm -hmm. you know and i really loved that melissa acknowledged she was like we like i'm learning how to have emotions like Mm -hmm. i'm still learning and there's no guidebook for this you know like they're learning along the way and on top of it, they're spearheading this huge initiative. And I think it's also really cool that, well, not cool, but the fact that if they can get this site cleaned up, 
then it's going to set kind that of a precedent. snowball for mm-hmm. getting other sites cleaned up for yeah. sure. So we hope that you guys feel inspired by Melissa and Lauren's stories of how they turned their pain into power and that you take a moment today to reflect upon some of the hardest moments you've experienced and pat yourself on the back for getting through them and becoming an even stronger person because of it. Or if you're going through something right now and and hearing their stories and feeling, um, you know, not even empowered, but at least heard or understood. Yes. You know what I mean? And just to see somebody who's gone through like the most unimaginable pain and to see that they're still here, they're still working, you know, it's like just to know that that's possible for you if you're going through something tough right now. Exactly. And so you can support Lauren and Melissa's work through change.org slash Santa Susanna. That is their petition that we said that we signed. It's going to be linked in the show notes. Mm, in the show notes. I love my show notes. <laughs> if you want to swipe up um, in the app and you'll be able to see our show notes. But right now it has over 730,000 signatures. They'd love to get it to a million. Um, there's also a website for their documentary in the dark of the valley.com where you can learn more about where to see it and updates on the status of the cleanup efforts. And also just to reiterate, to reiterate what Melissa said, um, that you can also visit parents against SSFL.com. S-S-S-F-L. Santa Susanna Field Labs. So yes, we will definitely be supporting them. Nat, should we review the wine that we've been drinking this episode? Because we have been drinking this Aveline Sparkling Rosé, their new rosé that they just launched. Yes. So first of all, let's talk about the hottie. Right. We always rate against the hottie of the week. And this hottie is like mega hottie. Always. Every time I see this movie, I think this is my queen. She also, and I will say, especially this movie, but in all movies, she always looks. movies. But I think this is her number one. Yeah. And that is Julia Roberts in Aaron Brockovich. Yes, which obviously, if you guys know Aaron Brockovich, very similar, similar. vibes mm-hmm. to Melissa and, and Lauren. Lauren. And so, okay, Julia Roberts in Aaron Brockovich is yes. our hottie of the week. We're going to rate the Aveline one to Julia Roberts and Aaron Brockovich. I'm going to take a it. sip. I actually really, so as you guys know on the show. We always say that we don't love a rosé. We don't love a rosé. I like this. Is a really fun drink. Too. It's fun. It's like it's like effervescent. Effervescent, and I also love the little bottle it's in. I'd give it an eight. I'm gonna. I was gonna say like an eight or an eight and a half. Okay, I'll make you an eight answer. And a half. Honest answer. Eight and a half out of Julia Roberts in Aaron Breakfast for the Aveline Sparkling Rosé. All right, so this is the part of the show where we do a little wrap-up game, and we, I think, need a little decompression from from that conversation, as powerful as it was. Um, So we're going to be playing this week, Citizens Citizens Arrest. Arrest. And I was telling that I feel really self-conscious about You say that every time. No, because you're so witty and funny and amazing. Mine is is really not that special this week. Mine doesn't even make sense. Well, give it a shot. What are you arresting? All right, citizens of the rest. I can't even say it. Just say it. Okay, well, let me give you some context. You know the last few days I've had. Yes. Okay. With um, I I haven't had internet. Not yeah, she's not had internet. I've been in the Stone Age. She sent me a voice note and she was like, "I'm so bored." (laughs) My my internet went out, (laughs) and so I'm gonna have to say this on the podcast, and hopefully they're never responsive. Citizens arrest on internet companies in Spectrum. Yes, seriously. I I feel like first of all, that makes sense. My internet guy came and he goes, "I'm gonna be honest with you. Between me and you, the package you have." It's impossible for you to get those speeds, and they're charging you way too much. And I was like, thank you, Ahmed. Ahmed, thank you. Thank you. And he was like, I didn't say it, but, like, you do not need this package. You didn't hear it from me. He was like, I got, like, the the highest, you know, I wanted the most. He was like, your building literally cannot get that wattage. Oh, my God. Yeah. And also, like, my internet went out out of nowhere. So for no, And he was just like, I don't even know why. He was like, who knows? So you know what? Citizens arrest on Spectrum because they're they're out here scamming folks. <laughs> scamming. And I will also, I'm going to add to that. And I'm going to say, 
the internet companies that say, oh, we're going to show up anywhere between 8 and 4 p.m. Right. And I got to sit like, here all what? day for you? I'm just going to wait here. I Also, I'm a little anxious, right? So I'm just constantly waiting by the door. Like, are you coming or not? No, there, there's this, is there a whole, there's a whole, it's. It's a, a culture. Whole, it's a culture and it's a scheme. <laughs> and we're all being schemed a little bit. Unless yes. you have Ahmed here to say, hey, let me let, let, me let you in straight, on this. To set it straight. Well, okay. So mine kind of actually works with yours okay. because it's home related. Okay. You already know this. Citizens arrest on fitted sheets. Fitted sheets. Yes. Fitted sheets. Mine are currently not on my bed correctly. Uh, I. First of all, I never, the amount of times I flip it around, because it's like the long way, the short way, the long way, the short, why can't they just put a tag? Why can't they just put a tag? I did send you that Snapchat. There is a tag. On like one specific (laughs) sheet, but I've got all these sets of sheets, no tags. Just tell me which side is up and down. Then I guarantee you, not one person listening knows how to fold it. No, you can't fold it. No. My mom's tried to teach me 400 times. I can't. No. They're all wadded up in my closet. (laughs) Because I can't, there's no way. Yeah, there's got to, I mean, it's 2021. There's got to be a better better way. way. I'm going to invent sheets, fitted sheets that you can fold easily and that have tags to show which corner. I need one that says upper left corner, upper right right corner. Mm -hmm. That's what I need. I can't be out here flipping it around, flipping it around, (laughs) flipping it around. And at one point you're like, is this a circle? Just, is, it's, is there a long side is and a short side? side? Or is it just a circle? Or sometimes I'm certain I have it right. Mm-mm. And then, you know, it yeah. pops off the side because it's stretched too far. I'm like, God. So citizens arrest. Citizens arrest citizens on Citizens arrest fitted, fitted on Spectrum or and or all <sighs> internet companies scamming us. And yeah. then also on fitted sheets. On fitted sheets. I think it's fair. I think it's very fair. <sighs> Anyways. <laughs> If well, you guys have any questions, go ahead, feel free to DM us at Am I Doing This Right Pod on Instagram or email us, Am I Doing This Right Pod at gmail.com. You know, we love those emails. Yeah, tell us how much you love our episodes. You can also visit our website, Am I Doing This Pod? Am I Doing This Pod? Am, Am I, I Doing, doing this, this Pod? Right pod.com. And don't forget to rate and review the podcast. Share it with a friend. This is such an empowering episode. Really special one. Rating our podcast helps us grow. And so we love you guys for it. Yes. And we just love you in general. We love you in general. We'll be back next week with another episode. Bye. Bye.